0: A ROM cartridge is a type of media storage device. Today, we've got solid-state hard drives, and just about everything, and wireless connections to back up all of our stuff onto the cloud onto computers elsewhere in the world that we can tap into on demand. But back in the day, even before DVDs, even before CD-ROMs, we had cartridges. ROM stands for read-only memory, meaning you typically couldn't write to this memory after it was produced. You could only get data from it. Modern definitions of ROM include types of memory that are typically read-only on a day-to-day basis, but which can, at times, also be reprogrammed later if necessary. The boot disk on your computer is ROM memory. So the part of your internal memory that holds the operating system and other even deeper level programs, that's the sort of thing that we had in these cartridges. And part of why they were so popular at this time is that they allowed folks with early computers to have the benefits of a floppy drive, a drive that could read floppy diskettes without needing to have the drive or the disks. You could essentially plug in a separate ROM drive, just like the one that was housed inside of your computer, running your operating system, and then move that drive from computer to computer. It allowed, in other words, for the hot swapping of media that would be tricky to distribute using any other contemporary mechanism. Fast forward a bit to the late 70s and we see Texas Instruments, an oft underappreciated innovator in the world of electronics, in my opinion, using tiny ROM cartridges to add new functionality and all sorts of programs to their TI-59 line of programmable calculators. Hewlett-Packard did the same with their line of programmable calculators, including the HP-41C a few years later. Where cartridges really hit their stride, though, is when they found their way into early video game systems. The TI-99-4A, the Commodore VIC-20, and Commodore 64, the MSX, the Atari 400-800XL and XE, and the IBM PC Jr. all made use of this method of program distribution, which at the time, because most of these machines were both personal computer And video game system meant the distribution of software like simple painting and typing programs, but also games like Pong and Space Invaders and Adventure. We also saw some arcade game cabinet makers like Neo Geo using these little ROM cartridges to distribute their games to their cabinets located around the world. This allowed them to more easily swap out less popular games in their arcade machines, which contained a screen, joystick and buttons, and coin slot mechanisms, without needing to remove and replace the whole thing every time they wanted to move games around or introduce new ones. All they had to do was reskin the cabinets, applying new graphics to the outside, and in some cases, changing around the joystick setup. But from there, they could just pop in that new cartridge and they would be good to go. A huge time and money saver for them the most famous cartridge-based gizmo of my childhood era, at least. And I was born in 1985, so there is a non-zero chance that I have many biases about this period of gaming and electronics history. But if not the most famous, definitely one of the most famous cartridge-based electronics of that era was the Nintendo Entertainment System. Here in the United States, this machine was the Cat's Meow and my siblings and I saved and saved and saved to be able to afford one, so that we could play Mario and Zelda and Bubble Bobble. And with the NES and similar consoles from this era, the game itself, the product that you would buy, was a ROM cartridge, just like those which were used in the aforementioned early personal computers. And interestingly, from the original Legend of Zelda NES-based game onward, some of these cartridges also included battery-backed RAM, alongside the ROM. And RAM means random access memory and is typically faster to read and write and therefore better for other sorts of tasks than those ROM style memory is most suitable for. That little chunk of battery-powered RAM allowed gamers to save their game so they could come back to it later, which was a huge step up from how saving worked before in games like Zork, for instance, where you would be given a long string of code, kind of like a complex password, that you would need to write down on a piece of paper and then retype in the next time you played. That RAM was called battery-backed memory because it actually contained a little battery that could keep the saved game-storing RAM running for somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 years on average. There are actually repair kits that you can buy to replace the batteries in your old Nintendo and Super Nintendo cartridges today, as most of these cartridges have been around for longer than 20 years at this point, and battery failure in them is common. That innovation, introduced with the first Zelda game, allowed the cartridge to rule as the de facto video game medium of choice for years. But eventually, the so-called fifth generation of video gaming consoles arrived, and in that particular generation, we were introduced to the first Sony PlayStation, the Sega Saturn, and the Nintendo 64. And the 64 was the only one of that trio to stick to the tried-and-true cartridge for their games a decision that some would later point at as the beginning of a huge dip in the company's popularity and stock market valuation, due in part to their inability to store as much data and process as many 3D polygon-based graphics as the competing PlayStation and Saturn could, with their newfangled CD-ROM-based games, which were supplemented with separate tiny cartridges that were used for saving games. Before that transition, though, in the heyday of the video game cartridge, there emerged an interesting side industry predicated on the technological nature of that specific medium. A cheat cartridge is a device that would usually fit between the video game cartridge and the hardware that it plugged into. So in the case of a Super Nintendo, you would plug the game cartridge into this cheat cartridge and then plug the cheat cartridge into the Super Nintendo. This device worked by intercepting the communication between the game and the console, allowing it to fudge the numbers and other bits of code as they passed through. In practice, this meant that you, the player, with one of these things installed, could play your favorite game with an infinite number of extra lives, or with super strength, or you could start the game at the final level, fighting the final boss, rather than starting at the very beginning as per the usual. There were a lot of these products on the market, and some of them, like the Game Shark, were eventually discontinued, but others, like Action Replay, Codebreaker, and Exploder, still exist today. They've updated their product so that they work with newer consoles, often gaining access through other means, since the cartridge disappeared and left them unable to intercept data in that way. But the most popular of these products, in terms of branding, anyway, back in the 90s, was hands down the Game Genie. Now, I don't remember if my family owned one or if it was a close friend who had one, but I still remember having my mind blown by this device, and how new codes would periodically trickle out through all the video game magazines that we were reading. We kids didn't worry over much about how we might be ruining the game by having infinite lives, and at this point, we were already familiar with the famous Konami code and the blood code on Mortal Kombat, the Sega version of Mortal Kombat anyway. So we felt very clever and morally righteous any time that we fought past the limitations placed on us by these repressive video game console companies. These companies, though, were generally not fans of these cheat devices. And Nintendo actually sued a company called Galoob, which made the Game Genie, or rather they licensed the Game Genie from a UK company called Codemasters. But they sold this product in the United States, so they were sued by Nintendo for modifying video games in real time by intercepting that data and spitting an altered version of the game out on the other side. And in turn, in Nintendo's estimation at least, this meant they were creating illegal derivative work, so it was infringing on their copyright, kind of like someone photocopying your book, making a few tweaks to it, and then selling it as their own new book. This case, which began in 1990 and which was finally ruled upon in 1992, was officially called Louis Galoub Toys Incorporated versus Nintendo of America Incorporated. And it was instigated by Galoob because of that lawsuit that was brought against them. Because Galoob wanted to make legally clear that their product was not violating Nintendo's copyright. After this filing, Nintendo sought an injunction against Game Genie to ensure that they were not continuing to sell this potentially illegal thing while they were getting the whole matter sorted out in the courts. So they could not sell the Game Genie for the duration of this lawsuit. Well, the courts found the matter in Galoob's favor and ended up ordering Nintendo to pay Galoob $15 million for the sales that they lost during the period of the injunction. The judge compared what the Game Genie device was doing to allowing readers to skip past parts of a book or to fast forward through a movie that they've purchased. It wasn't a violation of copyright, she said, and it was not creating derivative work. Nintendo appealed the decision and the $15 million that they were told to pay, but they lost that appeal as well. Later versions of the Game Genie, of these cheat cartridges in general, or maybe we should call them cheat devices these days since they are generally not cartridge-based anymore. The newer versions of these products often get approval from the company, whose products they are hacking, in part to keep things nice, legally, and in part because it can help them sell more units to get that approval, even if it's only tacit approval. That said, Nintendo is not the only company to have ever freaked out to the point of legal action about a third-party product that was put on the market primarily or exclusively to alter their product, to piggyback on it like some kind of parasite, using some of its energy, some of its content, some of its capabilities to achieve other, different ends. Ends that are, at times, incompatible with that company's desires and brand and vision, Or perhaps with their business model. What I want to talk about today are device hacks, hardware parasites, and Project Alias. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The Orpheocordyceps unilateralis is a parasitic fungus that can take over the bodies of insects so that those insects behave in ways that are beneficial to the fungus and not at all beneficial for its hosts. There are actually many fungi that perform variations of this trick, around 1,000 known species thus far, and most of them live in tropical forests in various places around the world. The Orpheocordyceps unilateralis, in particular, though, is notable because its mechanism and the evolutionary purpose of these takeovers is fairly evident compared to some of the others. What happens is this. The fungus releases spores into the air, and those spores attach themselves to the exoskeleton of nearby ants, in this case the Campanatini tribe of ants, which includes, among others, carpenter ants. And the carpenter ant does tend to be the most successful host for the havoc this fungus can cause, but closely related ants can also be affected in various ways by these spores. But when these spores land on these ants' exoskeletons, they begin to use what's called enzymatic hydrolysis to get through that outer shell meaning they use enzymes to break the bonds between molecules in the exoskeleton, allowing them to bore through that otherwise tough chitinous surface. From there, the spores spread as a mycelium, which are those super thin strands of string-like filaments that you sometimes see when you pluck mushrooms up from the soil. Those spread throughout the ant's body, tapping into its open circulatory system and taking control of the ant's actions, beginning, typically, with a series of irregular convulsions that cause it to drop to the forest floor, followed by an instinct to climb up high, generally to around 25.2 centimeters, give or take 2.5 centimeters, so somewhere around 10 inches up above the forest floor. They then find a leaf at around that height, one that is on the north side of the plant, in an environment with 94 to 95% humidity and a temperature of between 20 and 30 degrees Celsius, which is about 68 to 86 degrees Fahrenheit. They then cling to the sturdy vein on the underside of that leaf with greater force than they would usually exert, using their mandibles, their mouthparts, which are then locked in what is sometimes called a death grip or a lock jaw, and they then stay there holding on to that leaf until they die. Often what kills them is the expansion of the fungus inside their exoskeleton, which expands and expands until it ruptures the insect that it has infected. In this specific case, the ant is more or less filled up with that mycelium, the fibers reinforcing the shell even as they replace the ant's body tissue with its own tissue. It then eventually works its way up to the head, at which point its fruiting bodies, the part of the fungus that release the spores, crack through the ant's head and then rupture, spreading the spores across the forest floor due to the ant's height and position and the ideal climate in which these spores are being released. These sorts of fungi are parasites, but within the umbrella category of parasitism, there are six main strategies ranging from parasitic castrators, which remove their hosts' ability to reproduce, redirecting the energy that would have been spent on their hosts' young for themselves and their young, and in some cases their host, all the way to micropredators like mosquitoes, which attack more than one host and, as a consequence, only harm each of those hosts a tiny bit. This fungus, though, is a parasitoid, which means it is a parasite that will eventually kill their host, and usually for their own selfish gain. The carpenter ants in Thailand and Brazil, which are the main targets for these spores, are used as vectors to make more of the fungus, to spread its spores farther and wider than it would be able to manage on its own. This also means, of course, that if a parasitoid species is too successful, kills too many ants, and causes them all to kill themselves at too rapid a pace, it'll eventually run out of ants to use. And that means it's dependent in some ways on that ant species' overall survival, while at the same time being reliant on individual ants dying for its successful reproduction. That not creepy at all information in mind, the article I want to start with today comes from Fast Company and it's entitled, This is the First Truly Great Amazon Alexa and Google Home Hack. This article briefly mentions that fungus in the very first paragraph, and goes on to use it as a metaphor for an open-source project that was recently made public that could allow users of some very popular devices to take control of those devices more easily, and perhaps even use them for purposes their creators did not intend. The project in question is called Project Alias, which was created by a couple of Danish designers and released as free build guides on GitHub and Instructables, the former for the code, the latter for the hardware construction component of the project. As a physical object, Alias is a little hockey puck-sized plastic lid-looking thing with some holes on top. You put that lid... On top of your Amazon Echo or your Google Home, and it grants you additional functionality and privacy above and beyond what Amazon and Google offer you out of the box. What's happening beneath the surface is that Alias is creating a steady, very light audible blur of white noise using tiny speakers that sit right on top of the microphones your smart device uses to listen for your voice. This noise is so low that you can't hear it, but those speakers are in precisely the right spot to make sure that your voice assistant is kept effectively deaf, unable to hear your commands. The holes on top of the alias allow your voice to reach its microphone, which allows it to listen for your commands, and then it will feed what you want to get through to the Echo or Home device to those lower microphones while still blocking everything else. So at its most basic, this homemade device keeps the audio assistant from listening to you all day every day, even when you're not talking to it. It is the nature of these devices to listen because they're waiting for you to say something that might turn out to be a command for them. And a lot of that audio ends up being sent elsewhere onto the cloud for processing. The alias's white noise keeps that exporting of your private audio from taking place. While still allowing you to command the device as usual, your voice commands transmitted through the alias's little speakers to your device's microphones. So the same speakers that are usually deafening your Echo or Google Home with white noise when you don't want them listening to you, also transmit your commands to them once it determines that you are in fact giving commands. Only those make it through to the device rather than all ambient audio from the room in which the device resides, as is usually the case. Beyond that, Alias has an app you can get on your phone that allows you to train it, essentially, so that you can call your voice-based assistant anything that you like, rather than just the company-approved name or two that they have decided are okay. So if you don't want to say, hey, Google, every time you want to activate your device and give a command, and instead want to name it Bertha, or shout Booyah, or whistle the harmonica interlude from Last Dance with Mary Jane, you can do those things instead. The Alias app allows you to give your device any trigger noise that you want to give it, which it will then listen for, transmitting nothing to the device itself or the web until it hears the sound that you have designated. And when it hears that sound, it will whisper, Hey Google or Alexa to the device, triggering all the same benefits as before, but with that new customizability in place. Now, that's the main selling point for this device right now, which isn't being sold, it's being given away to those who do not mind 3D printing their own lid, buying a Raspberry Pi microcomputer, a microphone and some tiny speakers for 30 or 40 bucks, and who are keen to put all the components together themselves. The idea here is a lot bigger than that though. Because in some ways, this device gives you something like the Game Genie gave us kids who were playing around on our Super Nintendos in the 90s. It allows us to hack the system, to intercept commands, and potentially replace them or change their nature based on our desires or our whims. You could slap one of these things onto your Echo, for instance and then build a bunch of custom commands, allowing you to turn all the lights on in your home if you shout, let there be light, or when you clap your hands three times, or when you flush a toilet. It's still limited based on what the Echo will and will not do for you. So it's unlikely that the Alias or projects like it will allow you to shop at Walmart through your Amazon-branded device. But within that ecosystem, within the massive tool belt of options that have been built... For this device over the years, there is a good chance that users building these things for themselves will hack together some interesting tools that Amazon simply has not thought of yet or which they have thought of but decided not to implement because it was not in their best interest to do so. In fact, there's a very good chance that many of these customer-developed alias-enabled options will fly in the face of what Amazon and Google want you to be doing with the devices that they have built and sold to you there's a chance that some of the hacks will prove dangerous or offensive, or that they'll somehow allow you to shop at Walmart after all, or they will allow you to sideload unapproved commands, or will maybe just allow you to use a call word like Amazon sucks to give commands to your Amazon-built audio device. The connection between the Game Genie case, where Nintendo sued Galoob for kind of hacking their devices, is a strong one here. But this device, and the potential repercussions of having devices like this available, either on the market or open source, and I suspect we'll see a lot more of both in the near future, also connect to some other major tech and legal system-based issues that are unfolding in other portions of the commercial world at the moment. The right to repair movement, for instance, got its initial leg up in 2012 when Massachusetts, here in the United States, passed the Motor Vehicle Owners Right to Repair Act, which basically said that car manufacturers had to provide buyers with the documentation and info necessary to repair their own vehicles if those owners choose to do so. Now, this wasn't a national thing, but it would have been wildly inconvenient to make this happen in just one of 50 states in one country. So the big automotive trade organizations said, fine, okay, we will do it. And it's now something that all car companies have done in the United States, beginning with the 2018 automotive year. That victory led to the formation of an organization that hoped to achieve the same for our digital goods. Things like smartphones and Google Home Devices, and that organization was originally called the Digital Right to Repair Coalition, but they later changed their name to the Repair Association, or TRA. The TRA's efforts bore fruit as well, as the U.S. Library of Congress recently ruled that we have the right to bypass digital locks on devices we own, and that the Digital Millennium Copyright Act of 1998, which was previously used as a cudgel by companies like Apple and Microsoft, to keep people from breaking open the devices they purchased from these companies and tinkering around does not apply in these cases. The original argument was that tinkering with these devices would allow consumers to potentially see the code and the other inner workings of these devices, which could then allow them to engage in intellectual property theft more readily. The counter argument made by the TRA and others was that if consumers cannot open up or jailbreak their phones, they also cannot repair them. And if taken to its logical conclusion, that argument would mean that no one else other than the company and those the company deems legally okay would be allowed to repair them either. Notably, this ruling did not go as far as the car ruling in Massachusetts did. Advocates for reparability are working hard to get companies to first build their products to be more reparable in the first place, using fewer custom screws, for instance, which is something Apple is criticized for with a good deal of frequency, since you have to buy a custom screwdriver specific for that one tiny screw in order to open some of their devices, but also to ensure customers have the information and documentation that they need to make these repairs. As of now, the person at the repair shop who fixes the screen on your phone is not going to get sued, which is good, but you do not necessarily have the information that you need to repair your own phone if you choose to do so. And that's the next step here for advocates in this space who want us to be more capable of repairing rather than replacing our devices, but also more capable of hacking or modding those devices if we decide to do so. Both of those desires, reparability and modability, are headaches for these tech companies. Being able to repair your phone Rather than replace it, means that you will be less likely to buy new phones as frequently, which means less income for companies that go incredibly far out of their way to convince us that we need a new one each and every year. But being able to hack your device, being able to modify it, to mod it to derive new functionality from it, to use it for purposes or in use cases that the builder of the device has not decreed to be okay or safe, that's a different situation entirely. That means you might use their device to create a new, better competing device. Or you might use their device as the expensive core for a frame that you then sell, associating your brand with theirs in a way that they find to be undesirable, kind of like Gloob did with their Game Genie product. There was actually, for a time a rich underground black market for Xbox consoles back in the early 2000s that existed because hardware hackers would buy up used consoles and break through their security mechanisms, both hardware and software-based and then install what were usually called mod chips, additional bits of hardware that allowed you to customize the game system more thoroughly, turning it into essentially a streaming device for games from other systems, for movies and music, for images, for porn. A version of Linux was actually ported to the Xbox as well, an embarrassing turn of events for a gaming system developed by the company behind Windows. And yet, arguably, these modded Xboxes were some of the earliest, most successful media streaming devices, much like the Roku's and Kodi devices available today. These hacked Xboxes gave folks all kinds of functionality that they couldn't find anywhere else. And speaking of Rokus and Kodis, those devices are frequently hacked now, today, as well. Usually it's just a software hack that allows them to stream more shows or movies from more services. And in some countries, these hacks give users free access to Netflix and Amazon Prime and HBO, alongside the torrents and other pirated content that they usually contain. But it's a similar concept applied using different techniques. So it kind of makes sense that even when these hacks are popular with the public... They would be uncomfortable for the companies making the devices. How much would it suck, after all, to have your business model, like selling games to users of your console, bypassed or weakened by a hack that allowed them to just download emulated games from any console that they want for free, or that allow them to watch all the movies and shows they might ever have time for, rather than buying those same movies and shows through your online marketplace? A lot of these media-based devices are selling the hardware at cost or even at a loss, assuming that customers will then buy digital products and or games and things from them, which would allow them to actually make a profit off of it. It makes a great deal of sense then that these same companies might be a little bit irked when that intended revenue stream never Manifests or it does not manifest at the scale that they think it should based on the number of sales they have because people are using their devices in ways that they did not intend. In many cases, the law of the land seems to weigh that particular corporate concern more heavily than those faced by the consumers on the other side of the equation. And there are certainly arguments, again, for why that is probably best or at least warranted, just as there are arguments for the opposite. In California, for instance, a lobbying group of farmers made a deal with big agriculture, particularly John Deere and their assorted lobbying bodies, to gain the right to repair their tractors and combines and other equipment that they purchased from these manufacturers. It has become increasingly officially illegal, rather than just practically difficult over the last decade or so, to open up your own tractor and try to repair it yourself, For many of the same legally framed reasons given by tech companies about their intellectual property and the risk inherent in showing that property to any random person with a screwdriver and some time on their hands. So this was a deal intended to address that issue, to allow farmers to open up these devices that they have purchased. The distinction between repairing and modding was unclear enough in this agreement, though, that a lot of farmers and folks in the Electronic Frontier Foundation and other right-to-repair enthusiasts of that kind are claiming that this agreement wasn't actually what everyone thought it would be, and that John Deere and their cronies' concessions to make instruction manuals and repair guides available for sale by 2021 is not enough. Because the companies do not seem to have any plans to make diagnostic equipment or vitally replacement parts available to the farmers so that they can actually stand a chance of making their own repairs. The agreement also seems to imply that farmers will not be able to modify any of the software in their equipment, which is a massive issue, just as it would be for any car or any other vehicle. Lacking that capability, farmers will not be able to reset systems or reprogram control units or engine modules. They can't change any setting that might impact emissions or safety, which by some arguments are pretty much all of the settings. And no downloading or even accessing of the source code or any embedded software would be allowed. In other words, you might technically have the right to repair that expensive tractor that we sold you, but you do not have the parts or access to do so. And oh, the manuals that we promised you will not be available until 2021. And when they are available, you're going to have to buy them from us. Now, importantly, this agreement does not mean that this is a done deal everywhere, but kind of like the car related decision in Massachusetts, there's a decent chance that this decision in California will influence decisions elsewhere on the same matter out of economic and political necessity. It's also important to note that just because something is illegal doesn't mean it's not happening. There is a rich subculture of folks repairing their own farming equipment and hacking that equipment to make them do things that they were not made to do, out of the box. Sometimes these hacks are pretty clever, using existing farming technology for new purposes, just like those who are hacking at their phones and voice assistants and Xboxes to give them new functionality. And sometimes they are more to get the tractor back to doing what it's supposed to be doing after some kind of failure or hardware problem that the owner would otherwise have to pay out the nose to get repaired by John Deere. One more note on that movement, though, is just like the John Deere song and dance to get around actually giving any more actual power to their consumers, many companies, including many electronics entities, have been criticized or in some cases sent warnings by the Federal Trade Commission, as was the case recently with Hyundai, Asus, HTC, Microsoft, Sony, and Nintendo, for their practice of implementing what amount to unofficial barriers to self-repair by threatening, usually with little stickers that they apply to their electronics, to void the warranty of that device if the consumer dares to get their device or vehicle repaired by someone other than the company that made it. The FTC in April of 2018 said that this was only enforceable if the companies in question provided users with free warranty services and replacement parts. So some companies were okay because they already provided free warranties to which those threats applied, but those who were sent these warnings by the FTC had to change their legal language to avoid being punished by the government. I will be very interested to see what happens in this space in the coming years, in part because there is a growing, vocal, somewhat influential cadre of advocates trying to shift law to favor repairing things rather than replacing things. There's also a growing group within and adjacent to that movement that want to be able to hack their stuff, to be able to create infinite offshoots and iterations of anything that they get their hands on, modding and changing and adjusting them to their heart's content, arguing that doing so allows innovation to happen more quickly but also that it's in the interest of the consumer to be able to use the things we own as we want to use them, rather than being threatened or harassed by big companies to try to force us to color within their idea of where the lines are and behave only as they instruct us to behave. Those instructions typically predicated on their own financial priorities and the desire to keep any potential threat to those priorities at bay. As for Project Alias, I strongly suspect that Amazon will adjust their code to find a way around the device's meddling, just as game console makers adjusted their own product's code to bypass, for a time at least, the Game Genie's influence on their games. Game Genie and other such products iterated as well, of course, and continue to do so. Show me a 10-foot wall, and I will show you an 11-foot ladder, as they say. But even as that cat-and-mouse chase goes on, and even if the lawyers get involved, and Amazon tries to sue the makers of this open-source device for using an image of the Echo in their promotional photos or something like that, there's a good chance that there will be offshoots of this and similar parasitical projects. Expanding outward, granting users new utility from their existing devices, helping us to explore the boundaries of what these, let's be honest, often interesting and compelling, but not yet fully matured tools can do for us. We just have to hope that projects like the alias do not turn out to be dysfunctionally parasitoid in nature killing off their host, potentially leaving alias owners without the more expensive, difficult-to-build hardware and software core of their machine, represented by the Amazon Echo and Google Home. It is possible, after all, that devices of this kind could kill their host, either by demolishing the economic incentive for the company that makes them to keep making them, or they could just deem it to be enough of a branding threat to be worth cutting off what they might perceive as a limb that has developed gangrene. It's likely that we will all have the potential to make devices like the Echo and Google Home at some point, due to the ever-cheapening of tech hardware, but There's a gap in the interim during which that host, that perhaps unwilling collaborator, will be both necessary for the existence of these parasite projects and almost certainly continuously antagonistic toward them. The book that I'd like to recommend today is actually a trilogy combined into one book. The trilogy is the Xenogenesis trilogy by the amazing author, Octavia Butler. And the original three books in this series are called Dawn, Adulthood Rights, and Imago. And these three books were put together into one superbook called Lilith's Brood. And I'm rereading this book, actually. I read the trilogy a long time ago, and I read it as just a pure science fiction sort of trilogy. And it's interesting already in that respect, in terms of technology, in terms of aliens, in terms of the storyline and characters. It's very well written. But a lot of the deeper nuance kind of went over my head when I read this back as a young teenager, I want to say. And I'm glad I re-read it now today because what this series is really famous for, and Octavia Butler's work in general focuses on a lot of these themes, but this series in particular speaks with a great deal of depth and nuance about things like sexuality and gender and race and species and colonization and the relationship between agency and coercion of biological determinism and things like eugenics. The plot is is something that I don't want to get into much here because I don't want to give too much away. But essentially, you find out fairly quickly that during the Cold War, the thing that we feared would happen, happened, and the human race essentially destroys itself. There are very few survivors, and in that moment when the last few hundred or few thousand human beings are trying to survive on the surface of the planet, an alien species arrives and they show up and they rescue those survivors, but that rescue has a price. And that price is something that is appealing to some and unappealing to others, and is something that creates a very strange relationship between this alien species and these surviving humans. I think that is all I will say about it now, because again, I don't want to give away too much. But if any of that sounds interesting to you, and if you'd like to read some science fiction that is very, very different from the Spaceships and Lasers science fiction that you might find most prominently in mainstream culture, this is definitely worth checking out. The book is Lilith's Brood, and it is by Octavia Butler. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at com. You can find my advice column about life at somethoughtsaboutliving.com, and you can find information about the tour that I'm currently on at becomingtour.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram, and just Colin Wright on Facebook. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week.